This is episode 169, featuring a Q&A about 10 common running myths with my content assistant, Anya Mullen. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and if you love running and want to improve, if you have big goals and want the resources and inspiration to achieve them, then you're in the right place. On this podcast, you'll hear from the thought leaders in the running industry, the coaches, psychologists, elite runners, dietitians, and therapists who can help you elevate your performances. While you have to do the work, my goal is to show you the most strategic ways to work smarter and more productively so you can take your running to the next level. Because if you better understand running, if you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll make better decisions about your training, leading to more effective running, fewer injuries, and faster races. Don't miss our other 168 episodes of the podcast, our video channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning, or our home base, strengthrunning.com, where you can find all of our coaching and training programs that help you prevent injuries, run faster, build mental skills like self-efficacy, or become a stronger, more powerful athlete. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Inside Tracker, a company that helps endurance athletes optimize their training after taking a simple blood test. I'm a customer. I actually just got my results last week and everything's looking pretty good for me. And I just love their science-based approach. And I think this is one of those investments that actually make you into a better runner. Figure out if you're over or under training so that you can train more effectively. Use code STRENGTHRUNNING, no space, to save 10% on any of their blood testing kits at insidetracker.com. Today, I'm speaking truth to fiction. With my content assistant, Anya, we're tackling 10 different ideas about running and why you should think twice before believing them. This is a Mythbusters episode, and I hope it helps you gain some clarity about your running, be more productive with your training, and, as always, reach more of your goals. If you have a running friend that might believe one of these myths, don't forget to share this episode with them. We're going to be talking about Boston qualifying marathons, coaching, running through pregnancy, stretching, sports bras, and whether or not you are a real runner. Without further delay, please enjoy this special myth-busting episode with my assistant, Anya. Hey, Anya, welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to chat with you about running myths and misconceptions that runners have. Uh, this was an idea that you brought to me, and, and I'm so excited to talk more about it with you. I've written about it uh, in the past, but now it's time for a podcast episode all about it. Thanks, Jason. I'm excited to join again and hopefully provide some valuable insights to all the listeners. Yeah, and, and I had you on, let's see, we, you were on episode 162. We did a Q&A all about uh, beginners and how to start running. And that was one of my longer episodes. It was over 80 minutes. So if you want to hear me and Anya talk more about uh, different types of beginner questions, episode 162 is for you. Uh, but now we're going to talk about 10 different ideas or uh, misconceptions that runners might have about the training process and just different things in the running industry. I thought this was really helpful to do a sort of MythBusters episode where we can talk through these things, and some of these are 
you know, more geared towards beginners. Some of them are more geared towards women, but there's a whole breadth of different topics included here. And uh, of course, you know, listeners of the Strength Running Podcast are not going to believe any of these myths. So uh, if you want to forward this to one of your friends who thinks one of these things is true, you'd be doing them a great service. But uh, let's get started. What's our first myth that we're going to talk about today, Anya? The first one is about Boston qualifier times. And the statement would go something like, uh, a Boston qualifier is completely out of reach for regular runners. Is that true? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, here's what I would say. I would say that I am certainly not in the business of telling runners that they can't do something because I have certainly seen the quote unquote impossible. I have seen runners take an hour off of their marathon time in two or three races. What I've discovered is that a lot of runners might have realistic goals, say qualifying for the Boston Marathon, but their time frame for accomplishing those big goals is unrealistic. So a Boston qualifying time might be out of reach for many runners. You know, I'm not going to say that everyone can qualify for Boston. It's a competitive standard for a reason. You know, they literally cannot have all runners run the Boston Marathon. It's just not enough space. Um, but for the committed runner who takes a long-term perspective, then I do really think most people can qualify for Boston if they put in the work, if they're really strategic with their training, uh, and you know if they have that long-term patient outlook. Because a lot of the times, we want to rush things. We want to get that PR or you know that sub-three marathon or whatever the qualifying time is. We want it the next race. We want it after this upcoming training cycle. And the problem with that is that, well, your body just doesn't change that quickly. It takes a long time for all of those great physical and mental adaptations to take place. All those adaptations that allow you to qualify for Boston. So uh, I, I think for the runner who thinks a, a BQ is wildly you know, on the horizon, it's not something that they could ever accomplish. I would say have that in the back of your mind, but set up a bunch of lower tier goals so that you're always moving in that direction. You don't have to give up the goal, but it might make sense to, you know, kind of forget about it for a year or 18 months and focus on getting faster in the 5k, the 10k, the half marathon. It almost doesn't matter what the distance is but just focus on improvement so that by the time you start racing more marathons, you're in a much better position. You have more speed available to you. You're a faster runner. You've done a more uh, wider variety of workouts. So you just have more capability. You have more range. And that will allow more runners to run faster marathons and to qualify for Boston. And I think one of the problems with the marathon is that it's such a hard event and you can't run too many of them. You know, if you have a bad 5K this weekend, well, you can just register for another 5K the following weekend and try to, you know, have a comeback race and, and see what you can do the next time around. If you have a bad marathon this weekend, you basically have to wait four or five, six months to run another one. And so because of that, because of the nature of the marathon, it, it's just very difficult to run them very well. So my perspective as a coach is that, I want runners to run the best marathon possible. 
And because it's such a hard event, I consider it a more advanced event. And I would rather see runners focus on some of the shorter, quote unquote, easier races first, so that when they do start focusing on the marathon, you know, they're just much better at it. And you can kind of see this in the pro world, right? All these elite runners who are really great at the marathon. Now, not in every case, but in most cases, they got really fast on the track first. They were 5K runners, 10K runners. Then after, you know, their brief period of speed in their career, they transitioned over to the half marathon and the marathon. And, you know, that's what I did personally. I don't think it's the only option to go, but it does provide you a better foundation for running a faster marathon. Um, so that is my, my spiel on qualifying for the Boston marathon. I think it's, it's, it's a great, uh, challenging goal to have, but with that said, it, it's a long-term goal. You just have to have that perspective, that long-term outlook and it'll actually become more realistic the more long-term you think. That's a great point. I remember looking at the qualifying times when I first started running, and I would just back-calculate the um, pace per mile and decided back then that it was out of reach. But uh, with your approach of more of a long-term outlook, I think it is quite accessible to uh, the people who are willing to put in the work. All right. The next myth is that hiring a coach is only for the pros. (laughs) I think my life is a direct refutation of this myth, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's an interesting myth. And, you know, if you asked the global running population 20 years ago, it might be true that hiring a coach for yourself is probably unrealistic. But what I love is that the internet has made coaching accessible to virtually anybody. If you want to make it a priority, you can find a coach, a platform, a resource that can help you improve. And I frankly think that the the type of runner who is most receptive to coaching is the beginner runner. You know, it's kind of interesting that people think that those who are at the top of the game the world-class runners who are competing, you know, on the global stage, it's okay for them to have a coach, but it's not okay for a beginner. Well, they're already really good. They're already at the top. Why would they continue to need a coach? Don't they kind of know what to do at this point? And it's, it's interesting too, because when you think about any new skill that you want to learn, you know, whether, whether you want to learn pottery or (laughs) how to speak a different language one of the first things that you do is you go take a lesson. You go get outside help. And for runners, that outside help is now available and it's now relatively affordable compared with what it used to be. And so I think anybody who you know, really has a strong goal in their head, whether that is qualifying for Boston, whether it's re- reaching any kind of time goal in a race, or maybe even you know, you're, you've just you can't get through a training cycle without getting injured. And it's like the fourth time you've gotten hurt. You can never run your goal race. You know, now's the time to, to, to t- kind of look up from your training log and say, I need someone else to look at my training and, and figure out what I'm doing wrong. So I think coaching is extraordinarily accessible right now for any runner who is just passionate about the sport, who wants to improve. There are opportunities out there. And 
Um, I, I think, you know, now is such a, a golden time to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, is, is this something that you ever thought, Anya? Because I know we talked in our last podcast together, you know, over some of the imposter-like feelings that that you've had and uh, when you started running and all that. I did. And I think um, you bring up a great point. When somebody starts a new activity, we often start with some sort of lesson. That's how I learned tennis um, with figure skating. Also, very early on, I got a coach once I had the goal of trying to compete and learning new jumps and spins. So a beginner uh, mindset is really a great time to hire a coach It's just that with running, I often hear um, about these large support teams and coaches and trainers available to the professionals. And I think that's why I had considered that it was out of reach for me. Yeah. Well, the pros do have a very interesting setup. Um, You know, they have their coach. They also have a physical therapist, a sports psychologist, most likely, and, you know, some sort of other maybe performance consultant or something like that at the highest levels. And of course, it's unrealistic for the average runner to have an entire support team around them. And, you know, that's part of the reason why the Strength Running Podcast even exists is I want to bring that support team to every runner. So that's why I have such a wide variety of guests on the podcast to talk about different ideas from their field that apply to runners to help them improve. But for, for most runners, I think just the coach is, is surely sufficient. You know, that's enough to get yourself on the right track with regard to your training. And I think, you know, for any runner, the training is the most important part. Um, and, and just a word to the wise as an online running coach, a virtual coach, If you're thinking about getting a coach, the number one most important skill to have is good communication because virtual coaching is all about talking about your running, talking about how you feel. And if that's difficult, then the coach is going to have a difficult time, you know, talking to you about how your training is going because, you know, in the real world, when you have a coach, if you're on a, a college track team or something like that, then the coach is there to watch you run, to see what your form looks like to see how you respond to different stresses during workouts on the track. You know, they can see how your form falls apart late in a race or a workout. And that's really valuable feedback to the coach and virtual coaches just don't get that. So in some ways it's a lot harder to be a virtual coach and we do lean on the athlete to, to be good at that kind of communication because we rely on it to help guide the training and to talk more about, you know, why are we doing this workout? Uh, are are you running too hard? It kind of depends on how you feel. And, you know, there's so many nuances there. But uh, in general, I think coaching is fantastic for, you know, any runner with a big goal or with a big problem. Great. And I want to point out that on your website, you have a community where um, people can join and be a part of a team or they can get one on one coaching with you directly. So there's different options. If you need support, it's available out there. Well, thanks, Anya. Thank you for the plug here on my own podcast. (laughs) Of course. The next myth I want to bring up is one I've heard from friends and family saying that their bodies just aren't designed for running. And this has come from people that are really short or tall, top heavy, too muscular, too skinny, overweight, whatever it may be. People often use 
their uh, body type to as an excuse to say that it's just not meant for running. I find this fascinating because, you know, I'm often known as the running coach who's a big proponent or advocate of strength training. And I get a lot of pushback from runners who say, well, I can't go into the gym. I'm too skinny. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm too short for using the implements and things like that. So it's very interesting for me to hear the same arguments used for running. And, you know, of course, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for you if you're extremely overweight or if you're carrying 100 extra pounds of muscle because you spent the last decade bodybuilding. But for the most part, I think running really is for everyone. You know, if you look at the human body, we have so many unique adaptations that are made for running that make running so much easier for us and that do differentiate us from our closest cousins in the animal kingdom. So everything from the fact that we're mostly hairless is great for heat dissipation. The fact that compared to other primates, we have really big butts and that helps us run fast. We also have huge Achilles tendons, which is great for storing and releasing the elastic energy of running. And, you know, there's a couple other things. Uh, I think our, our ability to sweat compared with other mammals like dogs, you know, that is really great for helping us cool down. And there's been some fascinating research uh, on this from David Lieberman. I believe he's at Harvard and he's looked at some of the evolutionary traits that we have as human beings. And so this really goes beyond your personal, you know, body type. You know, we as people, as humans, are legitimately designed for running. So, you know, I, I think there is a difference between the person who might be predisposed for performance running and, you know, the fact that some anybody can run. You know, obviously, if you look at any elite level race, you're going to see very thin people. And, and I think the sport of running self-selects thinner people um, to, you know, compete at those high levels. Does that mean if you're not thin, you can't run? No, of course not. You know, the same way that, you know, me, I'm five foot seven, 133 pounds. I, I'm never going to play rugby. I'm never going to play American football. I just don't have the body for it. Um, now I could go play with my friends. I could do it recreationally. I could just go have fun. And, and that's what I want everyone to know. You can run many different ways. You could really focus on performance. You could run for general health. You can run for weight loss. You can run just to clear your head a couple days of the week and get out of the house. There's so many ways that you can enjoy running. And I don't want to let your body type stand in the way between, you know, you and, and going out and doing something that is just so great for your health, for your body, for your mind. And, and I think that's a great example for, for those around you. So I think everyone's designed for running. We have to make some considerations. You know, if you're, you know, you know, really muscular or something like that, we're probably not going to have you do certain workouts. Or if you're extremely overweight, you know, we're going to look at some weight loss strategies first. But in general, I think everyone is designed for running. Yep, that is exactly what I would say. Uh, just because you don't look like the fastest person or people winning the races um, across different countries doesn't mean that you can't run and gain so many benefits that pretty much anybody can through running. 
So Anya, our next myth is uh, an interesting one is for our women listeners. And of course, uh, I'm going to let you take the lead on this. Uh, the myth is that wearing two sports bras provides additional support. I'm going to politely bow out of this. Sure. So this is one I've seen and heard about and have implemented myself in my um, athletic career through high school and beyond. And so the idea is that wearing two sports bras um, helps reduce some bounce and therefore alleviate strain and probably lower back pain that women who have larger breasts experience. And I would dismiss this myth and say that while uh, it can be helpful these days, there are far better um, solutions out there. And the answer is basically getting a properly fit, fitting sports bra. So uh, it may take some um, professional fitting at a store or there are many online guides available right now. But doing uh, really quick research online, you come across brands that are designing um, athletic wear specifically with um, these body types in mind. So I encourage people, if you are still wearing two sports bras, consider investing in a single really good one. And it might be cheaper than wearing two anyway. Yeah. And I'll be the first one to say that I obviously don't know anything about this issue, uh, but I I can say that running apparel has made enormous strides in the last five, 10 years. And the, the admittedly expensive, but highly technical running gear that you can buy from, you know, a lot of great brands and, and maybe Anya, you can mention some of those sports bra brands that you've found to, to be really good. Um, but some of these brands just make unbelievably amazing gear, you know, the, the stuff that, you know, it has amazing, um, fabrics that they use and the stitching is really great. And the cut of the material is just fantastic and made for runners. So I have no doubt that women could find, uh, a better fitted sports bra than, you know, cause, cause I remember, you know, my wife and I met when we were in college and, you know, I remember talking to her about some of these things and, and yeah, there were girls who wore, multiple sports bras during practice. And and this was back in, you know, around 2004. And so I think uh, there's better opportunities today. And so Anya, do you have some of those brands that, uh, that women could check out? Yeah, so the only one that I'm familiar with is Freya. Um, but there are several others that I came across in a uh, Google search. So I'm sure women can look that up. And Um, Another thing I want to add is that designers are getting, um, I guess, better adapted at uh, designing clothing, like you said, for their um, customers. So they're considering not just making something bigger, um, but also, you know, things like padded straps and a band that has a particular type of elastic in it and adjustable um, bands and straps and things like that. So the options out there are uh, pretty vast. And I just encourage people to go out and get fitted and get um, a sports bra that suits them well. Yeah. And I, I'll just mention really quickly that uh, I saw a couple women that uh, I know on Twitter having a conversation about bras. And 
you know, it, it's it's also a difference between the band size, the cup size. There, there's a lot of different things that go into a bra and having it fit appropriately. And I think the custom fitting option is probably the best thing that uh, a woman could do who can't seem to find a sports bra that fits her properly, that gives her the support that she's looking for. Because I, I think, um, you know, there's there's a lot of those different factors. And for a long time, you know, you had, you know, just the 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 measurement size around the chest and then the cup size and then that was it but now there's more customization we had and and I think that's obviously going to be better for someone who you know has a, a different cup or you know chest ratio or something like that and they just find it hard to uh hard to find because I know I know for me and you know I'll just mention that I, I kind of have the typical runner build you know I'm very skinny I'm I'm not too tall and I find it really hard to find clothes. I just don't even like to clothes shop because nothing fits me because I don't, I have a kind of a different body type than most men. And it's taken me a long time. And I finally found some brands and, and styles that fit my body, but it does take a lot of work. So I'll just encourage, you know, anyone who's struggling to find a sports bra just to do that little bit of extra work because now those options do exist and they're there for you. Yep, exactly. And along those lines, um, this uh, sports bra consideration may come up when women are pregnant. Um, So that leads us to the next myth is that pregnant women shouldn't run. Wow, what a loaded question. I remember when my wife was like eight months pregnant with my firstborn she was running and uh, she was running like near a bunch of cars. She was kind of on the side of the road. There was all this traffic and she was shuffling a little bit. She was super pregnant and she fell and she like rolled on the ground. And like her first thought was, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) But she looked up and she saw all these people in the cars just staring at her with these wide eyes. She was terrified that they were going to yell at her that she shouldn't be running while pregnant. But, you know, I've talked to several, um, uh, medical professionals in the past about this topic. And, uh, I certainly want to hear your perspective Anya, because you've, you know, you've actually gone through this, but for me as a, as an out, uh, outsider looking in, it seems like all of the doctors and nurses that we talked to said, don't start any new kind of exercise when you're pregnant. But if you are a runner and you run regularly, then you can maintain that same habit. You know, now's not the time to maybe train for a marathon or, you know, train to run your fastest mile of all time. But it is a time when that general habit of exercise is a very good thing. And it's also probably a time where you just need to be a little bit more in tune with your body and really listen to the signs and signals that it's giving you. Because if it's telling you to slow down, if it's telling you to cut the run short or just stop, then, you know, those are good signs to listen to. But what, what have you heard from your, your doctors and nurses about this issue? It was pretty much exactly the same thing. We uh, had midwives who recommended that any activity I was doing to continue doing it as long as it felt comfortable. And I think the risk is more on the other side. Um, pregnancy is can be such a hard time when you're not feeling well, maybe nauseous, uh, probably not getting great rest, um, uncomfortable 
and all those things. And so women, uh, from what I see, women tend to move a lot less than is recommended. And nobody is trying to push a pregnant woman to get out there and get hit the gym or the track or anything like that. But in general, it's suggested that uh, you continue um, with the activities that you were doing before. And I also ran during my pregnancy and pretty late into it. I never um, did any races or I, I wasn't really ambitious about it. I just kept running with my husband and our dog. And it was a nice family activity for us. Uh, I remember specifically having to stop a lot and use a restroom or a tree or a bush. Um, but that was, and the pace <laughs> was uh, a lot slower, but those were my modifications. I ran um, for as long as and as fast as was comfortable to me and didn't push it beyond that. And I felt really comfortable uh, with that decision. Yeah. And I, I think too, you hit the nail on the head when you said that I wasn't ambitious with my running. And, and that's the key. Don't be ambitious, but just maintain. And, and over the course of the pregnancy, you know, your training volume, your training intensity, in other words, your total workload will likely just gradually decrease over time as, you know, maybe you feel a little bit worse as you get into the third trimester and, and running just becomes a little bit more challenging. Uh, but it's certainly something that you should talk with your doctor about, um, you know, with all three of my kids we went through a midwifery program and they were a little bit more progressive with their exercise and diet recommendations. You know, it was more of a holistic approach to the pregnancy and they were very bullish on exercise and that certainly included running. Yeah. And uh, a great resource or name that I want to throw out there is Alicia Montano. She is um, a professional runner who has taken a stance for um, maternity protections um, in her own professional running career. Um, I've seen several articles about her and just encourage people to look her up if they're interested. Um, she is, has been running super fast during her pregnancies, and it's just really impressive to watch her on video and see what she has to share about that. Yeah, she's incredibly impressive. And the fact that she's set at least one personal best during a pregnancy <laughs> is, uh, I think, a great indication that you could still train fairly well through uh, at least part of your pregnancy for sure. Uh, now, let's move on to uh, some some weight loss and, and body type kind of questions about running. Uh, the, this next myth is that running is the best way to lose fat. And this is fascinating to me because I think a lot of folks want to look at one thing. They want to pick, you know, a, a strategy, a tactic and see that as the thing I must do to lose weight. And when it comes to weight loss, you know, your diet, what you're eating, your nutrition, that is far more important than your exercise level. Um, so, so anyone who has a weight loss goal, focus on your diet first, and then the exercise is secondary. But if we're just talking about, you know, calorie burning, then running is one of the best ways at burning calories, you know, the per hour caloric burn of different forms of exercise, running is right near the top. In fact, I was looking at a a Harvard study that we're looking at uh, different sports and how many calories you burn 
uh, for a half an hour of exercise in these sports. And if you scroll all the way down to the highest calorie burning sports, I think running is three of the top four. So they have it at different speeds and running is four of the top six. So, you know, you're, you're going to burn a tremendous amount of calories. It's not going to be fat specific. You know, you can't really isolate, you know, what you're going to burn when you start exercising. It really is just about your calorie burn. But, you know, all in all, if, if all things being equal, running is one of the best ways to lose weight. Uh, although, you know, I, I've never actually used running as a weight loss tool. I've always been more interested in you know, running for performance or running for fun. But uh, just to say that I've never experienced that personally, it just seems like uh, all of the data and all of the studies around the topic are pretty clear on the total calorie burn of these sports. Anya, have you ever tried to lose weight by by running or have you just been focused on training for races? I did. I initially um, got into running my first marathon with the hopes of losing some extra fat. I didn't have that much to lose, um, but it didn't work out for me. <laughs> um, I, I actually want to ask about your program that I saw you have on the website for running for weight loss, because for me, what I found is that um, while running is great at burning calories while you're running, I was exceptionally hungry afterwards, um, more so than after, you know, say a bike ride or a session at the gym. So I was more than eating all of the burned calories and more. So I think I gained a few pounds in my um, marathon pursuit. And the marathon was really the main goal was just to achieve and accomplish something um, completely new for myself. Um, so can you share how the program that you have is structured where running is incorporated for weight loss and how to kind of not get into that trap of eating every calorie that you burn? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's always a tricky thing, right? You're trying to lose weight. So you're exercising, but then the ironic part is that all that exercise is making you hungry, right? So the weight loss program that we have is, is kind of a sub part of our nutrition for runners program. You can go to, I think it's strengthrunning.com slash nutrition. You can sign up for a bunch of content about this topic if you'd like, but the, the program is structured in such a way so that the, the diet is really first and foremost. You know, if, if you're eating good food, if you're eating unprocessed food, you're trying to reduce your sugar intake, you know, all these best practices, then that's going to be really helpful for the weight loss process. And then we layer on top of that certain workouts and, and training strategies that are a bit more conducive to weight loss. But no matter what weight loss program you're on, you're always going to have to juggle the, the twin demands of weight loss and needing to eat. And, and at the end of the day, losing weight is, is really just a math equation. It's calories in versus calories burned. And if you can change your diet in such a way that you're reducing your calories while still being satiated, while still feeling full at the end of meals by, you know, cutting out a lot of that processed food that doesn't leave you super full, but on the flip side is just incredibly calorie dense with exercise that does have a bigger uh, caloric burn for it, then, you know, weight loss does, it gets a little bit easier in that way. But, 
you know, I'll be the first one to say that weight loss is never easy, no matter what program you're on, it's always going to require sacrifice. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, if you're exercising in a way that is, you know, helping you burn calories and, and running is a great way to do that. And then eating really well, then, you know, that, that will eventually help you lose some weight, but you know, I, I'm never going to be someone who will say it's easy. It's always going to be hard. It is hard. I've gone through several cycles. I'm quite happy with where I'm at now, but um, with having a baby and other uh, phases in my life, I've gone through it. It's never easy, but I can definitely second that. Diet is the most important thing you're going to do, and everything else, as far as exercise goes, is uh, supportive and supplementary to uh, the nutrients that you're taking in. Well said. Our next myth is a little bit related to this. Um, Running decreases muscle mass. Is that true? It can be, but not really. Uh, You know, it's actually partly true, but... For most people, particularly men, because it seems like men have this concern much more than others, uh, you know, it's one of those issues where you have to really understand what running does. And if you're someone who's running 100 miles a week and you're running a calorie deficit, well, guess what? You're going to lose some muscle mass for sure because you are just exercising at such an extreme uh, volume that you know, your body needs calories somewhere. And if you're not eating enough, then you're certainly going to, you know, get those calories from your muscle, from your muscles. But running doesn't really eat muscle or break it down as fuel. I mean, to get that level of catabolic activity, you would need to basically not eat any protein and train at a level that, you know, would make a pro runner blush, you know, high mileage, high intensity, very kind of an extreme training stress. Um, But a more realistic running program, let's just say you're training for a marathon, it's your second marathon, maybe you're going to get up to 45 or 50 miles a week, then, you know, this kind of a program, if it's well structured is going to actually prevent additional muscle gain, but not really cause muscle loss. And and that's a big difference. So if you're someone who wants to gain muscle, running for performance is not really the sport for you. Um, Because running does, you know, it has more of a a catabolic effect. In other words, it, it, it prompts your body to not build muscle because you don't want to carry around a bunch of extra muscle with you. It doesn't help you in the sport of running. Uh, And the flip side of all this is weight training. So if you're in the gym lifting weights, that's an anabolic stimulus. You're actually going to be prompting your body to build muscle. Now, anybody who's listening to this podcast for a while know that I don't consider strength training cross training. It's just part of the training that runners have to do to stay healthy and optimize their performance. So if your training is well-structured, you're eating enough and you're doing some strength training, you are certainly not going to lose any muscle mass. And for a lot of runners, if they've never done any strength training, they might actually gain a little bit. And so, you know, I I see this mostly as a concern uh, from, you know, like my friends, my friends who, you know, have spent the last decade lifting weights, but they have a bucket list goal of running a marathon and they're terrified that, you know, they're going to come out the other end of the marathon looking like me. And I'm like, guys, you just don't have to worry about it. <laughs> just do some extra weightlifting on the side and you'll maintain your size and, and you'll be just fine. 
But uh, yeah, this, this is not really a big concern for most runners for sure. So between the last two myths kind of that we covered, if somebody is trying to lose fat um, by eating in a caloric deficit, um, and you mentioned that we can't target uh, fat loss necessarily, uh, are those runners risking losing a little bit of muscle, a little bit of fat at the same time? Yeah, you'll likely lose a little bit of both, although it's harder to lose muscle than it is to lose fat. So your body will burn more fat than muscle. Uh, but the key here is to prevent any kind of muscle loss, even if you're running a lot, is just to do some strength training. And even a little bit will have a very nice maintenance effect. You'll continue to have your normal muscle size uh, as long as you're lifting weights, you know, once or twice a week, or you're doing, you know, a decent amount of body weight strength work. So I, I really don't think that this is something that runners have to get anxious about because, you know, like I said, a good training program is going to have all of those elements within it so that, you know, you get to your goal race and you haven't lost 10 pounds of muscle, you know, you're not wasting away, you're, you're feeling good and strong. And, you know, any runner who, has run really well knows that you know you you can't be wasting away at the starting line you can't be you know 5 pounds down from the start of the training cycle because you've lost all this muscle mass and then expect to run well so any coach worth her salt is going to structure a program to prevent these things from happening in the first place that's really encouraging to hear well, our next myth is um, that fair weather runners aren't real runners. Is that one true? I don't think so. But first, what do you mean by a fair weather runner? Is this someone who just runs occasionally? Yeah, and I, I kind of think about fair weather skiers, if that's a term, um, kind of the skiers who only go out when uh, the sun's out, when the snow conditions are perfect. Um, rather than, you know, maybe uh, plowing through a ton of snow or going down icy hills. So that's what uh, I was, that's where I was going with this one is if I'm only running when it's convenient, when the weather is nice, when I have time for it, am I still a real runner? Sure. Why not? I mean, I think that if you go running, then you are a runner. Now, can you call yourself uh, a, a serious competitor? <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, let's not get lost in the labels that we give ourselves and, you know, the terms that we try to put on ourselves. You know, I'm, I'm someone who will occasionally go to the climbing gym. And if someone says like, oh, do you climb? I'll just say, yeah, occasionally. But I'm in, in no ways a competitive climber. I don't compete or anything like that. But, you know, for a lot of these runners who are fair weather runners, they may even still run races. You know, I think running is one of those sports where the actual sport itself, you know, the race is so accessible that anybody can really be a runner if they want to, as opposed to soccer or basketball, where it's a little bit harder to, you know, join uh, just a random game. You know, you have to get enough people. You're not sure where or when it is. And so the infrastructure of a recreational adult basketball league that, you know, just spans the country is, is not really there yet. Um, but for runners, it is. And so I, I think it's so easy to be a runner. It's so accessible. And you can do park runs or, or your local 5Ks just to get a flavor for what the sport of running is like. 
And, you know, for anyone who's just a fair weather runner, you know, don't be discouraged just because you don't like to, you know, run when it's really cold out. I had a friend who uh, was really good. I mean, this is a guy sub 16 in the 5k. He's one of my best friends. He didn't really like indoor track because he didn't like running in the cold. You know, most runners, if you ask them, hey, I got a friend who doesn't like running in the cold. Is he a serious runner? And they'll laugh and they'll say, oh, no, he's not serious about running. He doesn't like to run in the cold. Meanwhile, my friend could probably run circles around <laughs> these people. So, you know, I, I just think it's kind of silly to get bogged down in these crazy labels. You know, if you run, you're a runner. And I know we talked more about this in our beginner oriented podcast, which was uh, episode 162. And, you know, we talked more about this and, and I'm, I'm a, such a firm believer that running is one of the most democratic sports out there. If you run, you're a runner, anybody can do it. Yeah, one of the uh, recent great experiences I had was running the Friday after Thanksgiving, which uh, was just a few days ago. Um, there were so many people out in the park. Um, everyone seemed to be in a great mood and excited to greet each other. And I just had this kind of bonding sense that morning of um, waving hello to everybody, knowing that uh, hopefully they had a nice dinner, no matter who they were able to get together with or not, given the times right now. But I could tell that that particular run was kind of the joy of their day. They um, were out there having fun. And it was a really nice morning, given Colorado weather. Um, we have those often. But I, I just felt like a bond that um, I hadn't seen recently, because we haven't had very many races. And I think that bond is one of the things that makes running so accessible and so special as a sport, because it doesn't matter if you're a 55-year-old mom, you're a 25-year-old, you know, 240 marathoner, or, or someone in between, when you go out there and run and, and you see someone running and you make eye contact and you give them a little nod or a smile and a wave, there's a certain kinship in that we know what each other is experiencing. And, you know, that is a special bond, like you said. And, and I think that's something that makes running special. It makes it encouraging for new runners. And I, I think it's very motivating to go out and see so many people all the time running and participating in the sport. You know, I, of course, as a coach, I love to see it. You know, I, I'm very passionate about the sport. But, you know, deeper than that, it's really a certain connection to your fellow runner. And, you know, that connection is there, whether or not you only run when it's warm out, you don't run any races or not. If you're a runner, then you have that connection with other people who run. So Jason, we have only a few more myths left. Uh, the next one I wanted to bring up is that stretching is important for runners. No, it's not. Moving on. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, so I assume we're talking about static stretching or, in other words, holding a certain uh, pose for a predetermined number of seconds. And I think any runner, you know, the old bend down and touch your toes kind of hamstring stretches is the classic. And uh, I certainly grew up in, in high school. My introduction to the sport of running included team-wide static stretching before every run. And, you know, this was firmly ingrained as the way that runners warm up before a run. But if you actually step back a little bit and you wonder, 
well, does stretching help you warm up? Well, no, it, do, it literally does not actually warm you up. And I found it fascinating that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have they did a huge meta-analysis of hundreds of studies on static stretching. And they found that static stretching has no impact on your ability to prevent uh, repetitive stress injuries from running. And I just think that's fascinating because that's mostly why runners stretch. You know, I don't want to be tight because if I'm tight, I'm going to get hurt. So I'm going to do a bunch of stretching. I'll be looser. I'll feel better. And uh, I won't get hurt. I won't get injured. But that's not actually the case. You know, so there's this, this is one of the big myths that I think is is slowly starting to be realized by most runners. And I've certainly been on the, the stretching is not really helpful soapbox for quite a while because I've tried to get runners to do more of a dynamic warm up before they run. And this is what actually is going to warm you up before running. It really primes your body for performance. It elevates your heart rate, your blood flow within your body. It lubricates your joints. There's so many great things that a warm up actually does, uh, a proper warm up, that is. But stretching doesn't really accomplish any of those things. And, you know, as someone who used to be very religious about their stretching, now I may stretch something once or twice a week. And it's really just something that feels a little funny to me. And, and a stretch just makes it feel good. Uh, are you still stretching much these days, Anya? I follow your guides, Jason, and I do dynamic warm-ups when I am in a structured training plan for running. So this is when I have weekly mileage um, beyond what I would normally do. Like right now, I'm not training for anything. So I go for a couple runs a couple days a week. And usually it's so early. I don't, not, not that the time of day matters for stretching, but um, usually I just don't find the time for it, don't make the time for it. But when I have a goal in mind, um, injury prevention is a key part of the focus usually. So I do my dynamic warmups then. And I don't think I've done the static stretching that you're describing probably since high school volleyball days when we um, probably similar to what you were um, remembering, we would stand in a circle and somebody, you know, you have your arm across your chest and somebody is counting to 10. And that's how we got ready for our games. Um, I'm curious if you know, do high school sports teams and college sports teams still do that? Or are they also getting over the Smith? My understanding is that, you know, they're starting to move in the right direction and are doing less static stretching. Although, of course, you know, I'm sure every high school is in college is different based on the quality of the coach and, and how well versed he or she is in, you know, the latest science. Um, but it's certainly not something that runners should think that they have to do. But, you know, if you've been stretching for decades and you like it, you feel like it makes you feel good, you know, I'm not going to be the person to take it away from you. So, I think the best time for stretching, if you want to do it, is at the very end of the workout for the day. So, you know, if you're doing any kind of run, I love to see you sandwich that run in between a dynamic warm up and a running specific core or strength routine. And then after all of that is done, if you still want to do some static stretching, then I say go for it. I don't think it's really going to hurt you uh, unless you know you really go beyond what your range of motion allows, but that's kind of difficult. 
Um, but at that point, it can be helpful just in a relaxing sort of way. And we know that relaxation is a big part of the recovery process. So it can be helpful, I think, from you know a mental relaxation perspective, and that might help with recovery. But it's certainly not going to improve your performance, and it's certainly not going to help you stay healthy. All right. So now we're at our last myth, and that is that runners aren't strong. Well, I think runners who don't do any strength training are probably not that strong. Uh, but this is an interesting one because, you know, we talked a lot about body types and things like that. And distance running certainly selects thin people to be, you know, at the top of the sport, just like football selects big muscular people and basketball selects tall people. Um, you know, you have to have some certain characteristics to be good at the sport. But, you know, you get any elite runner. And they do a fair amount of strength training. You know, they're always in the gym. They're doing a lot of body weight work. And and that's indicative of an athlete. You know, the runners who are only doing some running, you know, they're, they're not doing any faster workouts. They're not doing any strength training. They probably are fairly weak. But like I mentioned before, I don't think strength training is cross training. It's just part of the training that runners have to do to achieve their potential. So if a runner's not doing any strength training, then, you know, I don't think they're training properly. And, and that's a kind of a hard opinion that, that I'll have here, but yeah, I just, I I think it's absolutely necessary for performance, for injury prevention, for improving your body image. If you, if you want to do that, but uh, I think it's really critical. And, you know, for anyone who thinks that runners aren't strong, you know, you bring them in the weight room and I bet their strength to weight ratio is actually pretty good because I have a lot of really strong friends and, you know, they'd be surprised with some of the, you know, the, the quote unquote skinny distance runners could do back when I was in college in the weight room, because, you know, running fast is an expression of strength. It's not just endurance. You know, your muscles have to contract powerfully, you know, very strongly, very quickly. And, you know, you get that person in a gym to do some squats or deadlifts and and they might surprise you with what they can do based on what they look like. And I think that's an interesting caveat to this discussion. Thanks for clearing all those up. I thought it was really interesting to kind of go through the myths that I've heard and ones that you've heard as well. Are there any others you wanted to cover? Oh, well... I think we're at our time for today. So maybe we will do a round two if we have some other myths that we can cover. But I would love to hear from our uh, podcast community here and just let me know if there are other ideas or misconceptions or myths out there that you think are wrong that you would love for me to talk about on the podcast or to interview someone or Anya and I can get back on here and discuss, then I would love to hear from you. You know, feel free to shoot me an email, find me on Instagram or Twitter and ask me there because, you know, if there's a lot of demand for, you know, these kinds of, you know, discussion oriented podcast episodes where we're talking about some of the big issues in the running world and and how to think about them. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in that. And I'll certainly be open to doing more of those if the, the, the listenership wants that. So get in touch, let me know. I'd love to do more if, if there's demand for that for sure. Awesome, Jason. Well, thank you for having me back on and I hope everyone enjoyed these topics. Awesome, Anya. Well, thank you. And thanks everyone for listening.
That's our show today, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and a special thank you to all of our listeners who have left reviews of the podcast lately in Apple Music. Every time I see a new one, it puts a smile on my face. If you found this podcast to be educational, inspirational, or you just want to give back, I would so appreciate a review from you. And thank you to our sponsor, Inside Tracker. You can see what they're all about at insidetracker.com, and if you want to take the leap, Use code STRENGTHRUNNING to save 10% on any test. What Inside Tracker does is test over 40 different biomarkers, like various stress hormones, to determine if you're training too hard, too little, or if you have any physiological weaknesses that could be remedied by either diet, exercise, or lifestyle changes. In other words, you learn about problems that have actionable solutions. Inside Tracker uses blood testing to get this information, and then they communicate what you can do to lift or lower your results into the optimal range. So for any runner who wants every advantage in their training to see what they're truly capable of achieving, I highly recommend Inside Tracker. And I'm not just a spokesman, I'm also a customer. Sorry, I've just always wanted to say something like that. <laughs> Let's just finish up and say that they do great work, and I've had two amazing experiences with them both a couple years ago and just a week ago where I got my blood test results back as well. So if you head on over to insidetracker.com, you can check out all of their different testing kits, and don't forget, code STRENGTHRUNNING will save you 10% on any test that they have available. All right, that's it for our show today. I hope you are well and safe. Thank you again, and we'll be in touch soon.